All right, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Where are we turning? Ecclesiastes chapter 2. There you go. Got some people listening. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We are wrapping up a section of this book where Solomon is essentially examining the pointlessness of several different things, and who among us has not done that? Examine the pointlessness of things um, from wisdom to pleasure. And then even at the beginning of this, he, he looked at the vanity and the pointlessness of time itself. So his first problem was, what's the point in, in seeking to like, grow in, in any area or seeking to build wealth or do all these things if, you know, if time ends, if death happens, if we die at some point? That was his original problem. So he's been spending this, these first two chapters looking at that. And so far in his pursuit of these different things, he has found no contentment or joy in them, in any of them. He has only found them to be vain. That's the word that he uses over and over. He's found them to be vain, which means pointless. And the irony of most of it, or the irony is that most of it is what we would find as recreational things, so as good things. Most of what he finds to be pointless are things that we would look towards to give ourselves contentment and joy. Most of the things that he talks about are things that we would, from the outside looking in, say, well, that's, those are the good things in life, right? Like when he talked about pleasure, I think it was two weeks ago, that's the sort of thing we would say, that's, those, those are the good things in life. The wealth that he enjoyed, the, the fun that he had in his life, we would say, well, that, that's what, that's really, everything else is on the side. Like everything else definitely doesn't give me any joy. That's the only thing that does give me joy. So it's kind of ironic. Now, in, this, in that sense, tonight, will make more sense that he finds our uh, topic tonight to be vain, to be pointless, because we're talking about work. We're talking about his, his toil. There's an old saying that people live for the weekend. Anybody know what that saying means, to live for the weekend? Anyone? Take a guess, just an educated guess, yeah. Close, close. Looking forward to not working, right? If you live for the weekend... You're living to, 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 uh, for the moments when you're not at work. For the most part, work is not an awesome thing for us. It makes sense. We don't really like work. We might tolerate it or enjoy it at times. But I think one of the biggest lies that we're kind of being taught today in our culture is that every single person will do what they love to do for a job. And that is just not the case. That is not always the case. Sometimes it's the case, but it is not always the case. The reality is that most of us would rather be doing other things. Even if you really, really like your job, even if you have a job that you really enjoy, you would probably rather be doing other things. Even whenever I used to play baseball, I love baseball. Like, I love baseball. And even at practice, I was like, I'd rather be doing other things. Like there were times at practice where I was like, I don't want to be here. I'd rather be doing, just hanging out, doing my own thing. So it makes sense what Solomon is going to say tonight, that he would find this to be uh, pointless. He'd find work to be pointless that he would have an even more pessimistic view of work if he, in the, the good things in his life, if he found no joy from those things. And of course, he's not going to find joy from the work that he does, the, from the toil that he puts in. Now, in politics, there's a term for a guy in Solomon's position. It's called a lame duck. It's another trivia question. Anyone know what lame duck means? Anybody ever heard that term? You guys have history classes. You've not heard the term lame duck in history? That's where I learned about it. Now, a lame duck is an outgoing politician. In other words, when their term is about to be up and they can't be reelected or aren't going to be reelected, they're in this weird position, right? Because they're leaving. They're not fighting for any sort of like position. 
They really don't have a whole lot of influence. And in politics, every single decision matters. So whenever you're a lame duck, you're kind of just thrown to the wayside. Like all your like teammates, all the guys you've been working with, kind of just like, you know, you're not really useful to us anymore because you can't do anything. You have no power anymore. With lame duck presidents, no one really talks to them. For the last like month of their presidency, they're just kind of there for appearances. They're just kind of chilling in the White House, which is kind of good. It'd be kind of a nice place to chill for a little bit. But think about that, for, for four to eight years, for at least presidents, they're working really hard on whatever their agenda is. They're trying to like create policies, they're doing all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, you can have this other guy come in with other priorities or another guy that just wants to completely undo it. So did you guys know that since, uh, let's see, since 1880, there's only been the same party in office for three straight presidents once? That's a long time. That's like over 100, that's like, what, almost 150 years, where only once has it been three straight times. And since 1950, only twice has it been two straight times. So essentially what happens, at least with the presidency, is one guy comes in, does a bunch of stuff, the next guy comes in and just changes it. Goes back and forth, back and forth. That's kind of what Solomon's, what Solomon's feeling tonight, because he spent all this, now it was more than 48 years, it was a whole lifetime of a kingdom where he's spending this time building up Israel and he's come to the realization that, oh my goodness, I'm gonna have to hand this off to somebody and I have no idea what they're gonna do. I have no idea how they're going to, to continue this legacy that he had built. That's what Solomon's feeling with his toil. All of that work that he put in, just out of the blue could be thrown away. And now a little bit of a spoiler, it was thrown away. Rehoboam was his son that took over and he was a total screw up. Okay, so it was thrown away. He didn't necessarily know that at this point. But he's sitting there at the end of his life thinking, what's going to happen when the next guy comes in? Whenever my, he had to choose which guy was going to, or whatever son was going to take over. He hated, if you remember, he hated how repetitive his work was. If you remember back in, I think, our second lesson, that he didn't like that, that his work was so monotonous. But now he's going to see that that monotony isn't going to lead to any fruit because some guy's just going to come in and either reap the fruit that he, that he, or harvest the fruit that he planted, right? He's going to come in and enjoy that success, or he's going to run it into the ground, which it was, again, the latter. He's going to run it into the ground. There's very real application for us in this text. Just like last week, this, this, this realization is going to leave him in despair. But as I said a few weeks ago, the, I said that the vice of the person who, maybe like the uninspired, right? The person who you know, drops out of high school, doesn't really care about his life, doesn't really care about where, where she goes. The vice of those people is usually like substance, right? Go to like alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be. But for people that are inspired, for people that want to be successful in life, their vice is going to be one, it's going to be pleasure, which we talked about a few weeks ago, because you're going to be successful and make money. But the other one is going to be work. The free inspired person, for the person who's committed, that has drive in their life. Their issue, the issue they're going to run into is they're going to want to make work their life. They're going to want to make their job and their career their entire life, their entire purpose. This desire for success pushes us and pushes us to surrender the things that actually matter, to work even more hours, more hours, only to find that it doesn't actually matter that much. And the irony of this text, it was kind of wild about this text, and it's, it's crazy because we're only going to get to talk about this at the very end, but it's actually, it's, it seems like such a meta topic. Like, I wonder, I want to know how many youth students are walking into a youth group right now going to hear their youth guy preach about work. Probably not a lot. It's just super, like, specific and random. 
So it seems like this super specific and random text. But at the, at the end of the day, the substance of what Solomon's talking about is just a springboard. This is actually the turning point of the entire book. Verse 24, if you just want to like highlight in your Bible, verse 24 is like the turning point of this entire book where he shifts and he's talking about work, which seems like such a just random topic, but then he shifts and sees, or he comes to his ultimate conclusion. In verse 24, he starts to realize that. He, he walks through all of these things that are pointless. The, the fact that he's going to live and eventually die, that he's going to enjoy all this pleasure but not find any contentment, and the fact that he's going to work his whole life to only have it passed off to somebody else. All this leads him to verse 24 where he realizes for the first time that there's only contentment and joy found in the Lord. And the why I said that that's ironic is because work seems like such a meta thing. It seems like such a random topic to talk about. But at the end of the day, if we want to get into the theological and spiritual side of things, we spend our whole lives working, trying to find autonomy, trying to find independence within ourselves to bring ourselves joy and contentment. And it's through that topic that, that Solomon says, you know what, there is no joy and autonomy. There's no joy in being independent. There's no joy in working and working and working. The only joy comes from resting in the Lord, from seeing that he is the only place that joy comes from. This is Solomon's ultimate conclusion, which is kind of crazy because it's only chapter two. We have quite a few chapters to go, but this is the hinge of the entire book, that ver- those, uh, or 24 through 26. So we're going to start reading in chapter two. We're going to read 18 through 26. Solomon says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of the Lord, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who places him, or for, for, the, one, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful um, just to be together once again, to be able to hang out together and fellowship together, to sing together. I pray that as we start to go through this text, as we look at first the smaller subject of, of how we should be, uh, what kind of workers we should be, but then the larger subject that, that uh, Solomon gets to in verse 24. I pray that our hearts would be soft to this message, that we, would be not, that we wouldn't be distracted by other things. I pray that our ears would be uh, open to hear and that I would get out, of my, or get out of the way, that there would be no flesh that would come through this, Lord. And I just pray that tonight, that for anybody that, that does not have Christ at the center of their life, that they would leave tonight with Christ at the center of their lives. It's in your name that I I pray. Amen. All right, so the problem that Solomon faces right now to start, before he sort of comes to this like revelation at the very end, is with work, with toil, which, 
it's different for you guys because you guys are a little bit younger, and I'm sure you, a lot of you guys have jobs right now, but you will get to a point where it's more like a regular like nine to five job, and then the monotony that we kind of read about before starts to like come into play, and then even the toil starts to come into play. So for instance, uh, this is just came to my head, but I worked for a few weeks uh, last month. It was like a five-week period that I was just like at work. It was nuts. Like I was freaking out, stressed out all the time. Like whenever he said I couldn't even find rest and sleep, that's what I was. Like I was literally like laying down on my bed, like rendering videos on my Mac, like while I sleep, waking up in the middle of the night to do another one. It was like so stressful. And it was for this conference for my, at my work. And at the beginning of the conference, like everything went wrong and all of our video stuff was like messed up and it wasn't working. So there was like this moment and I was like frustrated and trying to figure out what to do. We're going on the fly because this is like a live deal. So like we're trying to figure out the solution. But then whenever it sort of calmed down, there was a moment when I realized that I'd, the videos I'd spent hours making might not actually be played. Like that that might not happen. Like that's something we're gonna have to look at if, our, if this platform is not working, which it wasn't working, the platform we were streaming through. And at that moment, I was like hours that I'd spent of my life, hours, and none of it's gonna matter. None of, I'm, no one's even going to see it. That's, that, there's, there's vanity in that, that it would have all been for nothing. That's sort of what Solomon feels here. Like I said, very few people get to do uh, something that they love for a living. So his problem isn't necessarily with the work itself, because for Solomon, he is one of the few people that got to do something that really mattered, that he actually wanted to do. So his problem isn't necessarily with that. His problem is with the outcome of his work, that it wasn't going to be that it was either going to be uh, enjoyed by somebody else or that it was going to be ran into the ground. Now, we sort of tolerate the fact that we don't necessarily love our jobs because, like, for you guys at your age, you guys probably don't love your jobs. You don't really have an op- It's not like your career. You're just doing something random. Now, some of you might really like your jobs, but for most of you, you probably don't, but you do it because you make money, right? And you want money. That's the only way to make money is to work, unless you have parents to give you money, which I did not have parents to give me money. But it allows us to sort of buy stuff that we need, to do stuff that we enjoy doing. But remember, Solomon is about purpose. Solomon wants to find purpose in his life. He wants to have purpose in everything that he does. In fact, I would argue that it is this drive for purpose that actually makes him hate his toil. It makes him hate the work that he did. I don't think that he actually hated the work in the moment. I don't think that he hated what he was doing. Think about this. Why did Solomon originally ask for wisdom from God. He said that he wanted understanding to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. His purpose was there. Like he, he had what, the position he wanted. He was asking God so that he could lead and in a purposeful way, lead God's people in the right way. So of all jobs, Solomon had a job with purpose and he desired to work with purpose. So the problem wasn't, like I said, with the job itself, with the work itself. It was the fact that he was going to have to leave it to his son, Rehoboam. It's a really weird name to pronounce. He, was one of the, he winds up being one of, the most, one of the most foolish kings to ever live. One of the most foolish dudes. He loses almost 80% of the kingdom that Solomon built. That is so much. 80%. It's more than 80%. Like, imagine that. This isn't like... It's not just money. Like dudes were coming in and like taking their land, 80% of it. To, to acquire all that land, you have to be pretty strong, right? David and Solomon had pretty strong armies. And then this dude just comes in and it's like, okay, we're just going to be like this. We're going to get beaten by everybody, destroyed by everybody. He was, a, he was a fool, one of the most foolish kings to ever live. 
So in verses 18 through 21, we sort of see what the problems are with work and a life surrounded or centered around work. The first is that you can't take anything with you into the next life. That's Solomon's biggest problem because at this point, Solomon doesn't know that Rehoboam's gonna be a screw up. His problem is that all this stuff that he worked for, that he wanted to achieve in his life, now at the end of his life, he's like, none of it, I can't take any of it with me. It's not coming with me. It's staying down here with someone else. He says he literally hated his toil because he saw that he must leave it to the man who will come after me. All that wealth, all that land, all that power, he has to leave it to somebody else. He was the one that worked to accumulate all this, all that wealth. He worked for it just to leave it for somebody else. Now there's something honorable to this and we see some bad motivation from Solomon because most parents have the desire to leave their kids better off than they came, right? Most parents, that's one of the driving forces of why they work hard. And that's a good thing. Solomon apparently did not feel that. Maybe he did know that Rehoboam was a screw up. And he's like, I don't want to leave this fool with all my money. Like maybe he did sort of know that. He did not have that desire because he had put all those hours in, devoted his life to work just to leave it to this guy who was going to screw up his kingdom. Now I think about Rehoboam and I don't want to like, I don't want to prescribe issues into Rehoboam's life, but I wonder like how much more beneficial it would have been if he had like, had, again, this is just my own opinion, but if like Solomon would have just like taken a day off every once in a while and like hung out with his kid. Like I wonder how much beneficial, how much more beneficial it would have been. Even just being able to be around him and like, see, this is how you should govern a kingdom. This is how you don't get taken over by everybody who wants to take land from you. This is how we do it. But it's sort of the classic like trope of wealthy kids, Right? They don't get to hang out with their parents as much as their parents are working. Was it worth it? Would they trade the sort of wealth that they grew up with and inherited for more time with their parents? Well, for Solomon, it wasn't even worth it. And he was the parent. It wasn't even worth it for him. Because you can't take money with you. You can't take the possessions that you make in this life with you. This is why it's so important for you to make time in your schedule for church and for family to make those things a priority and not an, after, or not an afterthought. Because those are things that matter. The second problem is that you can't guarantee that your work is going to matter in the generations to come. Solomon's work mattered in the moment. He worked to be a just king, and he, for the most part, was a just king. But just like a president, none of that's guaranteed to continue with the next guy, and it definitely did not continue with the next guy. Now, like I said, we really don't know if Solomon knew what kind of fool his son would be. He wasn't necessarily in verse 19 thinking, well, my son, he's going to destroy everything. That wasn't necessarily his mindset. He doesn't know that. So it's unfair to him, though, that he could build up this kingdom and then not know how the next person is going to rule it. Not know, not know how, how it's, it's going it's to continue on. And spend so much time investing in something, that's something that's obviously going to matter to you, is what happens to the next group. That's one of the things, if you play, when you play sports, like when you become a senior, you have a desire to like create a culture that the younger guys would follow in that they would be able to leave and say, like, those dudes did things the right way. They had the right culture. We desire to have a sort of legacy because we don't want our work to be in vain. We don't want all that fruit, all that time we spent to be in vain. Now, with Solomon, he couldn't guarantee that God's kingdom was in good hands, or he could guarantee with himself that God's kingdom was in good hands, but he couldn't guarantee it after he left. So once we realize that, that it becomes more or less vain, that at some point we're going to have to give it up to somebody else 
or once we realize we cannot take anything with us after this life, work becomes even harder because it loses its purpose. And once that happens, we sort of feel what Solomon felt, which was the curse of work. Look at verse 22. He says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Then he says, For all his days are full of sorrow and his work of vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. If the ends of our hard work is vain, then the work itself becomes pointless. If we know the work we're going to put in is not going to result in any fruit, then the work itself becomes pointless. Here's a good example. All my examples are off the top of my head tonight for some reason, which is weird. But good example. The last baseball game I ever pitched, I got absolutely obliterated. You can ask Jason about it. It was just a terrible, terrible thing. I was so bad. I was so bad. But I did not work any less hard going into that game. Like, I was ready for it. If I had known what was going to happen, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have pitched that day. Maybe I'd be like, you know what, I'm a little bit sore. Not feeling it. But I did not know that I was going to get absolutely shelled that day. I did not know that. Solomon did not, he, he is seeing now the aftermath. He's seeing the vanity of the work that he put in. Like he's feeling this, this I've worked all this time and I can't take any of it with me. So the, it's completely worthless, all that time I spent. Just like for me, all that time I spent preparing, I, remember the, I literally remember the morning of, I was so pumped to start. I was like there like an hour before, I was like stretching, getting ready, I was so ready to go. In hindsight, I'm like, man, what could you have done with that hour of your life? <laughs> I've done so much with that hour of your life. I heard a snort, that's good. We read Genesis 3, we read that man is cursed to work. We're cursed to maintain the grounds. It says, by the sweat of our brow, we are cursed to this toil. And Solomon felt that curse so much so that he said his days were full of sorrow. I want to, to get to this, but a few things about this curse of work. First, it's absolutely true. I've seen... This, this, like the toil and like the, it says the sweat of your brow, like the curse that we see in Genesis 3 is absolutely true. I've watched my dad for 20 plus years work at UPS, which is an incredibly physically demanding job. He's had, he's had surgery on both of his elbows because of like he lifts boxes all day. I see him in the, in the freezing cold. He has to go out in the freezing cold and lift boxes. And when I talk, I'll talk to him and he's just like, he's almost to retirement. And he's like, not, he's like barely gonna get there. Because like he, he feels this curse. like He has worked tremendously hard, and he feels the pain of that hard work. Now, that was not God's original design that we would toil that way. Originally, Adam was going to tend to the garden in perfect harmony. His work was going to bring joy and purpose to him. But instead, because of sin, that's not how it worked out. With that being said, despite the fact that it's true that work is sort of a cursed thing, it's absolutely necessary. We live in a culture that has a terrible, terrible theology on work. Just awful. Work was terrible for my dad, but his work is what allowed me to have the life that I had, right? It's what allowed me to do what I do. The fact that I went to college. He didn't go to college. I went to college. And in the, in the dead of winter, I get to sit in my nice office, air conditioned, while he's outside working in the cold, right? I get to sit in the air conditioning because he worked hard. So work matters. The Christian works hard. Well, the Christians should work hard. We should be the hardest workers, but we should do so because we are called to do so by God, not because we find our entire identity in our work. 
Christian works hard because it's the righteous and holy thing to do. That's really hard to hear, especially your age, because I'm going to assume that a lot of you guys work jobs you don't like, and that someday you're probably going to work jobs you also don't like. It's really hard whenever you don't like a job. You, don't have to, you feel like you don't have to work hard. And even now, I've, I work at an awesome job. I work for awesome, I have an awesome boss. And that motivates me to work hard for him. But like when you don't like your job, the temptation is to not work hard. But even, as a, even if you don't like your job, we're called to work hard because it's ri- the righteous thing that we're, that we're called to do. In fact, it's this very perspective that Solomon lacked what caused him to hate his work. He's not about to, he, or Solomon's about to tell us that we should find enjoyment in our toil, which seems sort of contradictory, but it's not. It's about his mindset. We should find enjoyment in our toil just like my dad did, not because the work itself is amazing, but knowing that it allowed him to live and enjoy the good gifts that God had given him. That was where you find joy in the toil. Solomon's hatred of work speaks to the workaholic in this context. It's not speak to, it's not telling you that like you shouldn't try, you shouldn't give any effort at work, it's pointless. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking to the workaholic, the person who puts work above everything else, that makes it their life's calling, who misses the gifts that God has given them to work some more and then some more and then some more. Derek Kidner, he's a theologian, he says this. He says the compulsive worker of verse 22, overloading his days with toil and his nights with worry, has missed the simple joys that God was holding out to him. The real issue for him was not between work and rest, but had he know it between meaningless and meaningful activity. So the, the workaholic desires to be made whole by their job, right? The same for, for the athlete, for the student, the friend. We desire to be made whole by those things. So we work and we work and we work because work seems like a good and decent thing. But it makes it, it, makes it more difficult to, for us to see the difference between meaningful things and meaningless things. That if, we, if our whole life is devoted to work, we can't tell the difference between the two because work seems like a good thing. It seems like an honorable thing. I don't think we can truly, I don't think we truly understand how much valuable, how much more valuable people and relationships are to money and to wealth and to success, to success for real. I don't think we have any sort of concept. We say that they are, but we don't actually believe it. Like, I would have loved to be a professional baseball player. Like, that was the dream. Even to this day, like, the playoffs are on right now, and I get to see dudes, like, making awesome plays and, like, huge moments. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that'd be so awesome. What an awesome way to make a living. Right? You make so much money, but then also you get to do something you really love to do. Like something that, that in my free time I would choose to do. That's why I play slow pitch softball, because I still have that in me. But at the same time, despite that, there's nothing, it wouldn't have even, it wouldn't have even been close to as valuable as the life I'm living right now. And I'm not just saying that in the context of like my position here. That's not my point. But I'm saying that if I had to play baseball, traveling all the time, completely unable to get plugged into any sort of church context. I know it's like super countercultural, right, to say this, but like if, if, you're, if, the, if your job disrupts like your ability to plug in with the church, to be invested in real relationships with people, you should not have that job, like full stop. That shouldn't be something you consider because our career, our job is not nearly as valuable. There's a reason that even in, in Acts chapter 2, what the apostles were calling uh, the, the church to do was to give away all their belongings, to sort of pull it up, to be together all the time. There's not a whole lot of talk about career paths. 
There's a reason there's not like a lot of talk in the New Testament about like, here's how to get your dream job. It's all about the church. This is, that, that, that's what I mean when, I, when we get distracted from meaningful things and can't see that they're actually meaningless. So I could have played baseball and it would have been amazing. But my life would have been pointless. The relationships I would have had would have been so much less than the relationships I have now. My ability to be in a context like this, like in a church context, would have been almost impossible. She's not even close to as valuable. The curse of work only comes whenever we find our all in all in our work because it distracts us from what really matters. Work is not a bad thing. We should work hard. But whenever it becomes everything to us, that's when it becomes a problem. That's the theme of Ecclesiastes. It's all about ultimates. I'm about to read a quote that talks about that. That all these things are good things until they're made to be too good. Until in our minds they are too important to us. Now Solomon, he comes to this realization in verse 24. And this is where it sort of flips a little bit. This is where we start to see, uh, or where he starts to see what he's been missing this whole time. Look at verse 24. He says, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This seems like not that big of a deal, like this verse, but we should take note, if you've been reading Ecclesiastes or paying attention, this is like the first time he's mentioned God. Any other time he's mentioned God has been in a negative context. And even in the future, he's not going to talk, he's not going to mention him by name a lot. This is the first time where he sort of like acknowledges God's role in this. Where he sort of starts to see like there's nothing good outside of the Lord. This, these verses are the end of this sort of this specific section about toil and about work, but it's also the end of this larger section where Solomon's been evaluating all of these things that he looked to find contentment in. And these verses are maybe the first positive thing we've heard this entire book. There's one verse, I think last week, that was like somewhat positive. I kind of talked about it. I don't remember which verse it was. This is the first thing that's just like explicitly positive. It's like a good thing. It's like here, here, enjoy food, right? It's a good, it's a positive thing. And it's kind of ironic that it comes after a section about work because Solomon finally comes to this realization since we don't have control of our circumstances and cannot simply work everything out ourselves, we should just rest in the God who can. Michael Eaton, he writes this. He says, having experienced the bankruptcy of our, of our pretended autonomy. The preacher now points to the God who occupies the heavenly realm and to the life of faith in him. That word autonomy means independence, to be your own person. That's sort, this is an incredibly difficult concept for us. I know we, we live in this context, like we, most of us, I think all of us were, I don't know, born in America, probably grew up in America, Right? And in like a 21st century American context where everything is about the individual. That's just the culture that we're like born into. It's all about the individual. So this idea of autonomy, of us being our own person, is like sunk into us. We want to be the author of our own lives. We want to control where we go. We want to control what we do. We want to be in charge of our own destiny, to be autonomous. But upon realizing that this is a pipe dream, Solomon finally declares that we should rest in the Lord and stop seeking that. Stop looking to be our own or to belong to ourselves. Like I said, we're only chapter two. We're only in chapter two of what, 12 chapters or however many there are. But Martin Luther, he goes as far to say that these two verses are the entire point of the book, 24 and 25. They're the entire point. 
In fact, if you remember, way back when we first started this study, I told you guys this book would ultimately push you to the smaller joys in life and not the bigger ones. That it would ultimately push you to your friends, to your family, and away from money and fame and success. The better alternative to working ourselves to the bone, looking for happiness, is to instead rest in God and allow him to satisfy us. That's Solomon's crescendo. That's his point. Solomon rhetorically asks, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Which again, it's, it's a rhetorical question because no one can, but it's ironic coming from him. He's very schizophrenic right now. Like he's, I, I think of him like writing this and like kind of going back and forth, trying to figure out like where he stands on this. Now all of a sudden, just kind of out of the blue, he's like, you know what? I think my problem is that I haven't, I've been working too hard to try to find happiness instead of resting in the Lord. It's rhetorical because he now knows this. He tried everything, right? He's tried every single thing and found no joy in any of it. Philip Riker says that the preacher claims, or clings tenaciously to both claims that all life is vanity and yet joy is possible and good. So he's saying that, yes, those things can be meaningless. They're pointless if you keep seeking them out for, to find your all in all. But there is joy to be had if we just rest in the Lord. It goes back to what I read last week in Lamentations 3, that Jeremiah's endurance was shot. His hope was all but lost, but he called upon one thing that gave him hope, that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His mercies are new every morning. That's the better alternative to our toil and to our work. This is about like physical work, yes. Like, this is about labor. It's about having a good, a good theology of working hard. That's true. But this is about working to find our happiness. The better alternative to our work and our labor, trying to become autonomous, trying to become our own. This is the better alternative to that. The independence, being your own, is not all that is cracked up to be. That's why we're studying through community on Sunday nights. Your independence is actually what will destroy you. It's going to isolate you, pushes you towards sin. The reality is that the Christian is not autonomous. They are not independent, to which most non-Christians, especially in our context, would argue, what misery to not be your own person. But to the Christian, we can find assurance in that because it means that we belong to the Father. Belong to Him. He belongs to us. He is the only source of endless mercies day after day. He's the only source of steadfast love that endures forever. Everything else fades away. Everything else fails at some point. Every relationship you depend on, every job that you work, every college you attend, every drink you take, every single one of those things will fail you, but the Lord will never fail. He never forsakes. That's what Solomon's been brought to. He's been brought to his knees on this issue because it's his last resort. Unfortunately for most Christians and even most non-Christians, we got to get there before we realize it. Solomon had to get there. And part of what Solomon, the rest of this book from Solomon is going to be about is the regret of not figuring it out earlier not figuring out how to rest in the Lord earlier. Giving up your autonomy, your desire to be your own, to find your own joy, is the best thing you will ever do in this life. Letting go of this idea that you are your own because you're not your own, you're the Lord's, and that's such good news for the Christian, that we belong to the Lord. Solomon says that for one who pleases God, receives wisdom and knowledge and joy, while the sinner is given the business of gathering and collecting. They strive and strive after these things that don't matter, and they're allowed to by God, while the Christian finds joy. 
the toil of life. Therefore, it reaps fruit and we can find joy in our toil because we can rest in the Lord. So tonight as we close, we sort of need to take a smaller picture view and a bigger picture view of this text. The smaller picture is that we need to be good workers. We need to have a good theology work. Very, like I said, very few people get to do what they love for a living, and that's okay. It's okay. Even if you wind up in a dead-end job, working hard to the glory of God is your call as a Christian. The paycheck, that's, the, that's that new mercy that, that, uh, that Jeremiah was talking about. New mercies every single morning. That paycheck is that. Provides for what you need, right? You get to do things you want to do with that money. But with that said, the right theology of work would be that your work does not consume your life, that it can never be the most important thing because it's a chain reaction. People are not workaholics to be workaholics. People are workaholics because they know that the more they work, the more money they'll make, the more things they can get, the more pleasure they'll find in those things. No one's a workaholic just because they like, love the work, unless you're an athlete or something like that. Then you're a workaholic because you just love what you do. But most of us are not that. Most, most, most workaholics are not that. In fact, most of the workaholics I've known or met hate their job, despise their job. They're not doing it because they love the work. They want money. They want the stuff that comes with it. But that is a vain and meaningless existence. We're not designed for that. That was not our chief purpose in life. That's the smaller picture. But the bigger picture is that we are not autonomous. We're not our own. The bigger picture is that we need God at every single waking moment of our life. And there isn't a single joy or pleasure that we can truly experience in its fullness without the Lord. Solomon spent much of these first two chapters telling us how vain pleasure and wisdom and work and money are just to tell us that simple truth. There is nothing better for a person than to eat, to drink. doesn't mean to drink alcohol necessarily. It just means to eat and drink, right? And to find enjoyment in his toil. And he says, this is from the hand of God. It all comes to that. It's all, he, all this whole section is so dramatic and it just builds that simple truth. It's such a basic thing. He doesn't say, he, it's not, he doesn't talk about this grand like plan or grand like career path. He just says to eat and to drink and to enjoy your toil. Because God is the one that brings joy and toil. There's not a season of life or a level of success or any height of happiness that exists without our heart being completely and wholly dependent on God, regardless of if you know that or not. A life without Christ is not a life that is whole. It's a life that is missing something. What had previously, that's, this is important, what had previously not satisfied him, now satisfies him. He talked about uh, pleasure. He talked about work. He talked about toil. Those things he said were vain. But now that God comes into the equation, all of a sudden he's finding joy in those things, pleasure in those things. The difference, of course, being that Christ is now at the center. Kidner says that the basic things of life are sweet and good. He says food, drink, and other work are samples, samples of that. And the preacher will remind us of others later. He says what spoils them is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. After all this negativity in the first two chapters and all the negativity is going to follow, he has this brief moment where he finally finds joy because he's found, he's found satisfaction by enjoying the Lord by enjoying the gifts that God gives him because he knows that they come from a God that won't forsake him. So if Jason would come up and if you would stand with me. He kind of sounds like, to an extent, 
like the way that I feel in moments of hopelessness, and even the, the way that like I feel, even Jeremiah maybe felt in Lamentations 3. Riker notes that we rarely, like I said earlier, we rarely hear about God in the first few chapters. And when we do, God seems to be the problem. But here, God's presence makes all the difference. So whenever I am in a hopeless state, I often find myself far from God, looking to literally anything to help me except for God. And in that, I'm even more hopeless and desperate. But whenever I, and this is where this saying came from, this sort of day by day, hour by hour saying came from, is that I found in my own life that even whenever I was hopeless and whenever I was looking to anything else to satisfy, it was in the little moments, whether it be like me going home on my lunch break to pray or like, uh, like my car ride home, like listening to worship music, whatever it might be, it was the little moments whenever I draw near to God. And for that moment, I felt joy that I leaned into the Lord instead of other things. And I could literally like feel myself like be brought back to life in that moment. And it would go away. Like, I'm not gonna tell you that like, stay there. Usually in the, if, at the end of the car ride, it kind of went away. But for that moment, like I felt content again. I felt close to the Lord. Riker, I'm going to quote him one more time. He closes by saying that if anybody is having trouble finding enjoyment in life, it must be because God is not at the center of things. So that's the question tonight. Is God at the center of things? the most fundamental and important question you should ask yourselves every single day of your life is Christ at the center and if he isn't you're not going to find what you're looking for you won't find true joy you'll find toil you'll find sorrow over and over again even in this writing Solomon's entire attitude demeanor and disposition changes at the recalling of the Lord just like Jeremiah in the midst of Lamentations 3 and that sorrow that he was in, just the recollection of the Lord impressed upon him in that moment, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ends, that his mercies are new every morning. Even just that, that remembrance of that being true gave him hope whenever he felt like there was no hope left, there was no, there was no endurance left. Jesus changes everything. Whenever we live for him and through him and to him, everything changes in our lives. He brings comfort where there's pain. He brings endurance when you can't take another step, you bring stability where there's chaos. It's that ultimate source of joy. Whenever I said that autonomy is going to kill you, it will suck the joy out of your life. Because whenever we want to feel like we're our own, but what we really need is that, like from that hymn, where he says that fetter is on our ankle, right? That chain. He's going to bind, the hymn says, like a fetter, he binds that one, our wandering heart to him. That's what we need. That goes against autonomy, right? That makes me think, I don't want to be chained to anybody. But that's the assurance that we need. That we can't get away from God. No matter how hard we try, we can't. He's always going to bind us to Him. He's always going to bring our wondering heart back to Him so we can rest in Him. So as we, as we respond tonight, you might need to come to the Lord in prayer. If you're struggling, again, I would implore you to come to Him with your troubles, to not go to sin, to not go to the world with your troubles, but to cast your cares and your burdens onto him. Because he will not forsake you in it. To put him at the center. If you're not a Christian tonight, but tonight would be the night that you give your life to him, to make him the center of your life. So I'm going to be down here if you need to pray. If you need to pray with someone, grab a friend. You can pray in your seat. Let's sing together.